If you don't know me, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm the, the children's ministry pastor here at GCV. And if you look around, you'll realize that the children's ministry is a, is a big, big job at Grace Church of the Valley because a lot of you guys have a lot of kids and, and you kind of won't stop having them. Um, which is a good thing. Every week it seems like there's some new picture that shows up in my inbox of a, a new sweet baby that's been born to a family here at our church. Even just this last week, uh, I got news of, a, of another addition to our church family. Uh, and so it's been such a sweet thing to see that. And it always reminds me of, uh, of when we had our first. So um, my oldest is six years old. Most of you know him because he makes himself known. And uh, his name is Grant. And, uh, and I remember when we had Grant, and Grant was, was very small. It might not come as a shock that I have small children, um, but Grant was very small when he was born. He wasn't preemie or anything. He was, he was full term, but he was 5'7". Five, 5 um, five pounds and 7 ounces. He'll be lucky if he ever sees 5 feet and 7 inches. But um, <laughs> he was 5'7", an elevated white blood cell count. It wasn't anything crazy, but it was enough that with his size, the doctors were a little concerned. And so we ended up spending a few days in the hospital before we were able to take Grant home. Um, and... And I remember those days in the hospital, but what I really remember is, is the nights in the hospital. Uh, because I would stay up doing everything I could to keep Grant quiet so that Anna could get a few hours of rest. And, and I ended up spending the majority of those nights putting Grant in that little, the little like, I don't know, it's a bus cart. It looks like what you go around to bus tables with, that little metal cart with the little plastic crib thing on top. And I would put Grant in there and I would walk him around the halls of the hospital because they wouldn't let me carry him outside the room, right? And so, so Grant's in this little plastic bin on this metal cart and I would spend hours just walking the halls of Clovis community with my new little baby. And while I did that, I was looking at his, his little cone-shaped head and his puffy eyes and his adorable little face, and they're not really adorable for a couple weeks, but, <laughs> but I was looking at him and I, and I was thinking of all of my hopes and dreams for this little baby, all, all of the things that I desired for him, and I was, I was praying over him, and I remember asking questions like, like what is he going to be like? What's he going to sound like when he talks? What will his personality be what things will he struggle with? What things will he excel at? And I would, I would pray about my hopes and dreams for him. I would pray that he would like the same movies that I do, that he would, that he would be healthy and happy, and, and he would grow up to do something valuable, productive with his life, that he would be brave and strong and steadfast. And of course, my greatest desire for him, my greatest prayer for him then and now, that he would grow up to serve and to follow Christ. And, and that time in the hospital, it was, it was hard and, and exhausting, but it was so full of, of hope and joy. And then I remember when they finally let us go, it was something like three days later, but it felt like an eternity. And, and I remember buckling Grant into his car seat, and he looked so little in this big giant seat. And I buckled him in and clicked, clipped him into the car, and we, we felt like we were breaking out of prison, right? We were so overjoyed to be free of that place. And then I pulled out of the parking lot and I turned onto the road 
and something changed. Because those joys and those hopes and all those things that I was excited about, they suddenly turned into fears and, and anxieties and when there was this, this weight of responsibility. Because that little baby in the back seat, he was mine. And I was the one who was responsible for him to, to keep him safe, to, to keep him fed, to keep him protected, to keep him healthy. If he was going to grow up to do all of those things that I had dreamed about and prayed about, well, then I had to keep him alive to get there. And there's this kind of weight and anxiety and all of these hopes and dreams. But suddenly, the responsibility set in of what it is to be a parent, what it is to be a father. And if we look in Scripture, of course, we see that the chief responsibility of a parent, the chief responsibility of a father is what's given in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He says, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is our greatest job, our chief goal, our highest responsibility as parents is to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But here's the thing. Biblically, that goal, that job, that call to intergenerational discipleship for one generation to disciple the next, it is not just a call for fathers. It is in fact a call for every single believer, for every single member of the family of God. We are called to disciple the next generation of God's people. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at a passage that clearly gives us that call, that call to intergenerational discipleship. So we'll be in Psalms 78, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Now the way that this psalm kind of breaks down here, the first eight verses that we're going to be looking at this morning are something of the preamble. This is the, the, the philosophy, the idea of what intergenerational discipleship is. And then the rest of the psalm is learning by doing. The psalmist goes and does exactly what he has called us to. And, and we get to see that if we read it. Although this morning, we won't. We'll just stick to those first eight verses. So let's read them then. Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget, his work, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, as we look at the call of the psalmist to intergenerational discipleship, 
to sharing the truth of God with the next generation of your people. God, I pray that as we do this, you would help us to do it with clarity, with accuracy. God, that we would see the weight and the responsibility that is placed on every one of us to the future of the church, to the future of your people. Convict our hearts, fill us with your truth, drive us to worship and love and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in these first eight verses, the psalmist gives us this picture of intergenerational discipleship. And what he does is he gives, us, gives it to us effectively in three parts, three essential pieces of intergenerational discipleship. He starts with preparation, then he moves to what the process of discipleship looks like, and then finally, the product. Another way to put it is this. He begins with the foundations for disciples. He moves to the formation of disciples, and then he ends with the fruit of discipleship. So let's start with that first piece. Let's start in the beginning with the foundations for disciples. Verses one through three. Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and have known that our fathers have told us. So before offering instruction on intergenerational discipleship, he begins by addressing the disciples themselves. And what he does is he answers two questions. The first question of who are the disciples? And then after that, what do they need to know? So first, who are these disciples? Who is the psalmist speaking to? Who is he calling to this work of intergenerational discipleship? Well, right there in verse one, give ear who? Oh, my people. That's his audience. That's who this call is being placed on. Oh, my people. But who are the psalmist's people? Well, in this case, the psalmist is identified as Asaph. We don't know a ton about Asaph, but what we do know, we see in in 1 Chronicles, we see that he is a Levite. So he's a, a, a Jew. He's one of God's people. In 2 Chronicles, he's referred to as a seer or a prophet. And then in Matthew, he's referred to explicitly as the prophet. So Asaph is not just one of God's people talking to his kinsmen in a genealogical sense. He is a prophet of God. And so when Asaph refers to my people, he's doing it with the voice of God. When he says, give ear, O my people, he is calling all of God's people to listen to the words of his mouth. He's using my people in the same way that Moses does. See, when Moses goes before Pharaoh and commands that Pharaoh let God's people go, he uses my people and God's people, Yahweh's people, the Lord's people, he uses those things interchangeably. So in any given instance between Moses and Pharaoh, he might refer to my people or God's people, but they mean the same thing because Moses, in that sense, is speaking in his capacity as a prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God. And so when he says my people, he's speaking of the people of God. The same is true of Asaph here. Give ear, O my people, O God's people, all who are counted among God's people, all who are a part of the family of faith, You are the ones that he's talking to. My people are the people of God. And what's interesting is that as he's about to lay out this call to intergenerational discipleship, he addresses it broadly to all of God's people. He doesn't say, 
Give ear, O mothers and fathers, to the words of my mouth. He says all of God's people. See, this responsibility to invest in the next generation, to disciple the young, to disciple the children, that is a responsibility that falls on parents, yes, but it falls on all of us on all of God's people. We see this confirmed if we jump down a little bit, skip ahead to verse four, where it says this, we will not hide them, the them here is is the the things that the um, disciples are to learn. It says we will not hide them from their children. Now it's interesting because what we would expect, what would even feel more natural in reading this is that we will not hide them from our children, but that's not what it says. We will not hide them from their children. Now, why is the there there? It's because this responsibility for the discipleship of children is primarily, but not solely, the responsibility of the parent. It's primarily the responsibility of the parent, but it's not solely the responsibility of the parent. Rather, it's the responsibility of the whole family of faith. And so I'm not just giving these truths or sharing these truths with my children, but I'm sharing them with their children. In this instance, the children of my fathers, the children of my spiritual forebears, the children of all of the family of faith. It's the responsibility of the parents, but it's also the responsibility of the whole family of God. I also think that he uses there in order to make this point that as parents disciple their children, It is a service and a responsibility to their children, and it's a service and a responsibility to their God, but it's also a service and a responsibility to the church. We as parents have a responsibility to the church, to the family of God, to the whole people of God, to disciple our children. And you see, that's the end to which the psalmist is writing here. That's that's what he's calling us into this intergenerational discipleship for in order that the whole body of Christ, the whole family of God might be edified through intergenerational discipleship. So that first question, who is being called? Who is being addressed? The answer is simply this. All believers are having this call to intergenerational discipleship placed on them here in Psalm 78. And to healthily live out this intergenerational discipleship, we need the children of our church, the the children of this family of God, need two kinds of disciplers in their lives. The next generation needs two kinds of disciplers. They need parents, and they need the family of God. Every one of us is called to this work. Not just the Sunday school teachers, not just the youth workers, but the entire body. If we want to live out this picture that the psalmist is painting here, that he has called us to, then we need every member of the body to be committed to being disciples of the next generation, seeking after generational faithfulness. So that's question one. Who are these disciples? Question two in the foundations of disciples is this, what do the disciples need to know? What are the prerequisites for being the disciples that each and every one of us are called to being? What are the prerequisites for being those who invest in the next generation as we are all called to invest? Let's look back to the text. 78, one and two. In 
Give ear, O my people, all of you, to what? To my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. See, it starts with listening. Before we teach, before we disciple, we must be discipled. We must listen. We must hear. We must give ear to the word of the Lord. Then he says this in verse 2, I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. I will open my mouth in parable and utter dark sayings from of old. Now, parable is something that probably most of us are pretty familiar with. We probably have some concept of what a parable is. Most likely, we're familiar with parables from the teachings of Jesus, right? Because Jesus frequently spoke in parables. He would frequently uh, illustrate the truths of the kingdom of God by telling stories. Sometimes these stories were, were true, though often they were fictional, just used to illustrate a point that he was trying to make. And so we have this concept of parables as a story that is intended to teach. And in fact, this, this verse, verse um, Verse two here, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter dark sayings from of old. This is applied directly to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, 34, it says this. All things that Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Listen to this in 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So if we're going to engage in this work of discipling the next generation, we have to incline our ears and listen to the word of God. We have to listen to the parables. We have to listen to these sayings, these things that are meant to teach us. But then there's that next phrase, dark sayings from of old. We'll open my mouth in parables, okay, stories that teach a lesson. We get that, we understand that. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now that's a little more confusing. It, it, it sounds a little over the top almost, right? Dark sayings from of old. It's got like a, a spooky, mysterious sound to it. And, and I'll tell you, as I was looking through, through commentaries and things and resources on this, looking at kind of how the church has historically understood that dark sayings from of old, there are some wacky ideas that have come out of that. There's this kind of sense of, of mystery that's shown there. But, but I don't think that it's all that complicated. I, I don't think that it's, it's all that extreme. Because what does it translate that as in Matthew chapter 13? You see, here in Psalm 78, it says dark sayings from of old, but when Matthew quotes that same passage, this is how it renders it. It says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So the dark here is not some spooky, dark, magical thing. When he says dark sayings from of old, He's talking about mysterious things, enigmatic things, these riddles, these things that could be hard to wrap our brains around. One commentator put it like this, and I think it's helpful. These sayings are dark in the sense that they are dark to autonomous reason. The things that we are to know as disciples are, are dark in the sense that they are dark to autonomous reason, meaning that they are hidden to merely earthly wisdom. 
that on our own, in the power of our intellect, in the power of our reasoning, we cannot arrive at the truths that we must arrive at in order to disciple the next generation of God's people. And this goes right along with what Jesus says about why he teaches in parables. So back there in Matthew 13, if we turn just a few verses back to 13.10, Jesus has this discussion with his disciples about why he speaks in parables. And we see this. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more, the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. So these dark sayings that Asaph, that the psalmist is calling us to know, to incline our ears to, to listen to, these dark sayings are things that are hidden to autonomous reason. Things that are hidden to um, natural reasoning that are only spiritually discerned. These are the points of the parables. The, the, the parables, these stories that tell, that, that, that make a point, and these Dark sayings are the spiritual truths that are hidden within those parables. Hidden from relying solely on earthly wisdom. They will see but not see. They will hear but not understand. These are things that are mysterious because they cannot be attained by our own cleverness. But they are given to us only through God's special revelation of himself in his word, illuminated by his spirit. And so, the psalmist calls our attention to parables, to these deep spiritual truths that can only be discerned rightly and fully and completely through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit of God. But then, in verse 3, he says this, the things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now that seems in direct contrast to what he just said, doesn't it? On the one hand, the parables, the riddles, the mysteries, the enigmas, the, the dark sayings hidden since the foundation of time, and on the other hand, the things that your dad always told you. The things that we've heard, the things that we've known, the things that our, our fathers have spoken to us. And, and it seems like there's a tension here, but in reality, this is so often how the truth of Scripture plays out, isn't it? There are things that we, that we know, things that are obvious and evident, facts about God, and yet there is a deeper spiritual truth underlying it when by this the Holy Spirit empowering us, our eyes are opened to the depth of reality. Let me give you a, an example of what I mean. Have you ever, have you ever had a moment where you're, you're reading the scriptures and 
um, or, or you're listening to a sermon or, or whatever it is, and you're confronted with the truth that you've always known, but it just hits you differently in that moment. I, I, I can think of times where, where I've been reading and I've just been struck by, by say, the holiness of God. By how great and glorious and set apart and perfect he is. And I, I'm struck by the weight of it. And then I go and, and, and I run to someone. I run to Anna and I go, Anna, do you know that God is holy? And she goes, yeah. Duh. You know that too. This isn't new information, right? We've all kind of had this experience where, where our eyes are open to the, the depth of truth. And it's a truth that we've known. It's the things that our fathers have told us. But we realize that those things that we've been told over and over again, there is a deeper and more profound sense of them, which is that dark saying from of old, that, that mystery hidden since the foundation of time. This is how spiritual truth works out, how it, how it gets into our, our bones. So the psalmist is calling us here to incline our ears to his teachings, to these parables, to the deep and powerful truths underlying these things that we've always heard. But what parables is he talking about specifically? Well, his immediate reference here is not to the the parables of Jesus, it's to the parable that he's about to share. In verses 9 through 72, the rest of the psalm, as he goes through and traces the history of Israel. From the the exodus until the the Davidic kingdom, the establishment of David's throne. And and he he traces God's mercy and his faithfulness all throughout that time of of wandering in the desert as he provides them with food and he provides them with water. He he traces God's faithfulness as he... um, and his power as he conquers the promised land for his people. And that's the parable that he is referring to. And all of his hearers already know that. But what he's calling them to here is to see the deeper truths of God's own self-revelation in that history. To see who God is and what he's like as that history points to him. To search the mysteries of God's mercy and his grace. And this is the prerequisite for all of us as disciples. That we incline our ears and listen to God's self-revelation through the mouths of his prophets in his word. This is something that we're all called to, and we're not called to do it passively. We're not called to just come and sit on Sunday mornings and and listen to God's word uh, taught to us. We are called to dive into God's word seriously and deeply and search after those dark sayings from of old, those deep and profound spiritual truths beyond the surface that God would open our eyes to them. Spurgeon puts it like this as he is commentating on this passage. He says that the psalmist is so so full of this knowledge of of history and God's working throughout history that that he pours it forward like a, a gushing flood. And then he says this, beneath the gushing flood lay pearls and gems of spiritual truth, capable of enriching those who could dive the depths and bring them up The letter of this song is precious, but the inner sense is beyond all price. So if we are going to seek generational faithfulness, then every one of us, we need to devote ourselves to the Holy Spirit-empowered study of God's revelation. 
And one of the things that I am so grateful for here at Grace Church of the Valley is that so many of you do that. So many of you commit yourself to the diligent, regular, deep, Holy Spirit-empowered study of God's word, and I am so incredibly grateful for that. But sometimes I think there's a piece that we miss in this. So many of us so committed to the study of God's word, I feel like sometimes we miss the fact that if God gives us a gift of knowledge, he does not give us that gift of knowledge for ourselves. That as God reveals these deep spiritual truths to us, he doesn't do it just so that we can profit. We don't dive in the depths and bring up these pearls of God's wisdom and truth so that we can have a nice little collection of pearls hidden away in our closet. We're not to dig for the treasures of spiritual wisdom so that we can pile them up on top of a mountain to have a a cozy place to sleep at night. No, we learn so that we can teach. God gives us mercy and grace in revealing his truth to us, in revealing things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world, in revealing the depths of his glory and grace and mercy and power. He gives us grace in revealing those things to us by the power of his spirit, through the testimony of his word, in order that we might teach them. As you have learned and been graced to learn the truth about God, that was not for you. It was for you to share it with the coming generations. For you to proclaim it to the people of God. And so Asaph here moves from the foundations of disciples to the formation of disciples. Look at verse 4. We will not hide them, those things, those spiritual truths that have been revealed to us by God. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Notice here in verse 4, Asaph moves from using I to we. He goes, incline your ear to the words of my mouth, to my teaching. Listen. Okay, now that you've listened, now that you've discerned spiritual truth, you've, you've had these things revealed to you, now we, we're doing this together. And what are we doing? We are proclaiming the truth of God to the next generation. This process of the formation of disciples plays out in the transmission of the things of God the telling and teaching of God's curriculum. And here in verses four and five, we see three main categories of curriculum that we are commanded to teach to the next generation. The first is this, it is the nature of God. The nature of God. Look at verse four. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord. Now, what's translated there in the ESV as the glorious deeds of the Lord, I gotta be honest with you, I think ESV missed it. And here's why. Because that word deeds is not in the Hebrew. The the word deeds is added to kind of make it it read a little more smoothly, but, but really... I think the, 
the rendering in the, the LSB or the NASB or the KJV or the HCSB or the BSB, a lot of other translations go with this rendering where they say instead of the glorious deeds of the Lord, they say the praises of the Lord. And yes, Dale, I just said that I like the LSB there better than the ESV, okay? Um, it says the praises of the Lord. Now, why is that significant? What's the distinction? What's, what's the difference there? Why is that important? Because on the one hand, we're talking about the glorious deeds of the Lord, the things that he's done. On the other hand, we're talking about the praises of God. Not the glorious deeds, but the glorious themselves. We're talking about the character of God. We're not just talking about God's deeds in pronouncing his revelation to us. We're talking about the truthfulness of God that underlies God's revelation. We're not just talking about the, the, God's mighty acts of judgment. We're talking about the justice of God that underlies his judgment. We're not just talking about God's merciful acts of redemption. We're talking about the mercy and grace and love of God that underlies those acts of redemption. See, Asaph is calling us here, the psalmist is calling us here to share the nature of God with the next generation. The praises of the Lord, the many excellencies of his nature, to proclaim them to the next generation. To my children and to yours. Then he says that the praises of the Lord and his might were to to pass on the, the, the news of God's majesty, his omnipotence, his power, his very nature. And then, the second half of verse 4, he says, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. The wonders that he has done. So we're to proclaim the nature of God, but we're also to proclaim the works of God. The wonders that he has done. That word wonders is often translated as miracles. And what it's, what it's picturing here is these works of God that display his power. Particularly, his wonders in salvation. So we see that same word come up other places in the Psalms, like in Psalm 98. Let me turn there real quick. Psalm 98, verse 1, where it says this, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. That's that same word, wonders. He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And if we continue on, looking through the Psalms, we look at Psalm 107, we see this concept of the wonders, the mighty works in salvation, the mighty works of God come up again in Psalm 107, starting in verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing of the soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor and they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death 
and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord, listen, for his steadfast love and his wondrous works, his wonders to the children of man. So we're called to proclaim to the next generation the character of God, the nature of God, who he is, what he's like, but also his works. The things that he's done that have displayed his power and his glory and his might. The things that he's done that have displayed his character and chief among those acts of God that proclaim who he is. Chief among them is the work, the wonder, the miracle of salvation. Proclaim the nature of God, the works of God, and then finally, the law of God. Verse 5 of 78, it says, He has established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. He established a testimony, appointed a law, and he commanded our fathers to teach them to their children. God has established a law and a testimony. He has set up his moral law, his revealed will, and we have a responsibility to teach that to the next generation. We must teach the next generation what obedience to God's law looks like. Now, sometimes we get this a little twisted. I think historically in the church, especially in children's ministry, we've had a focus, an over-focus on the moral law of God. We've ended up with children's ministry that is largely moralistic. It's all about what you should do and should not do. But what we started to see in recent years is, is in reaction to that, our training of the next generation has swung far to the other side and instead we, we neglect the moral law of God. But the reality is, here is that we are to proclaim God's law, but we are also to proclaim God's character and God's works. And this command to, to teach the law is repeated throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? So in the Old Testament, we see things like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, the, the Shema, the, the great law of God, when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And then the very next thing he says, and you shall teach these things to your children. You shall teach these things to the next generation. But we see that repeated, at least echoed, in the New Testament, in the Great Commission. As Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so this is our curriculum. As disciplers who have drunk deeply of the truth of God, who have inclined our ears, who have, who have listened to God and have his character and deep spiritual truth revealed to us by his spirit, our job now is to Teach the next generation about who God is. To teach them the nature of God, to teach them the works of God, and to teach them the law of God. That's what these first five verses do. That's what they tell us to do. But what's the result? What's, what's the fruit? Where does that get us? That brings us to these last two verses, verses, sorry, last three verses, verses six through eight, and the fruit of discipleship. It says this. Here's why we do it. Here's the goal of our instruction. Verse 6. That the next generation might know them. 
might know what? Might know the things of God, might know his nature, might know his acts, might know his commandments, that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn and, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. See, the goal of our instruction, the goal of intergenerational discipleship is the formation of the whole person of the child. The formation of the the whole person of the next generation. It is a full-orbed discipleship. A threefold goal. We teach and we disciple and we commit ourselves to investment in the next generation that they might, one, know the truth of God. Two, hope in the works of God. And three, obey the commandments of God. One, that they might know the works of God. There in verse six, that the next generation might know them. We communicate all of that truth so that they can know him, but the goal is not that that knowledge just stops in their heads. It's not that they build up this great knowledge of the truth of God, that they know all the scripture and all the theology and all the catechisms and all the memory verses. That's good, but that's not where the goal of discipleship ends. And if our discipleship ends there, it's not the discipleship that we've been called to here in Psalm 78. It's that they might know him so that, in verse 7, so that that knowing is not an end in and of itself. It is a means to an end. And here's that end. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. The goal of knowledge is not that our children, not that our next generation would rely on their knowledge, but that it would drive them to the saving work of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're told that knowledge puffs up, right? And often that's used as as a reason, as an excuse for why we shouldn't work so hard at theology and why we shouldn't try to to understand these things so deeply. But that's ripping that verse out of context because if you continue reading in 1 Corinthians 8 from verse 1 where it says that knowledge puffs up into verse 2, it says this, if anyone imagines that he knows something, He does not yet know as he ought to know. So the knowledge that puffs up is the knowledge that is ignorant of the self, that's ignorant of our shortcomings. So when we impart knowledge to our children, knowledge to the next generation, the goal is not to puff them up. The goal is that they would see rightly who they are in light of who God is. Because true knowledge leads to humility and humility leads to dependence. True knowledge leads to humility, just like it did for Moses. When Moses saw God, when God went before Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and proclaimed who he is, and what did Moses do? He bowed to the ground and he worshiped. Or Isaiah's true knowledge as he had a vision of the throne room of God, the glories and the power and the might of God. And what did he say? I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. The true knowledge of God that Paul attained. When he went from the knowledge that puffed him up as a Pharisee, seeking his own legalistic righteousness, to true knowledge of who God really is and who he really is in relationship to God that caused him to say, I am the chief of sinners. 
That's the kind of knowledge that we want to instill in our children, we want to instill in the next generation. It's not knowledge that lives in the head, but it moves to the heart as it drives dependency that they might put their hope not in themselves and not in their knowledge, but in the mighty works of the God who saves them. That's the goal of our discipleship. That because of their knowledge, they would realize that they need salvation that is beyond their ability, that they would find that hope and that trust and that confidence in the works of God, and that because of the saving works of God, they would obey the commandments of God. That they should set their hope and not for, set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but they should keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We want them to know the truth of God so that they will hope in the works of God, so that they will obey the commandments of God and they will be obedient, steadfast, and faithful. That's why we teach the things of God, not just to transmit knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but that they might be obedient to God's law and steadfast of heart, and faithful to the Lord. I started this morning by talking about the weight of responsibility that I felt when bringing Grant home. And in some sense, my fears and anxieties bringing this little boy home were justified. Because the reality is the job of raising our children in the fear and nurture of the Lord is so much bigger than I initially realized. It's not just about giving him knowledge and teaching him obedience, it's about shepherding his heart to rely on God. And even then the stakes are higher because as we invest in the next generation, as I, as I disciple my son, I'm not just discipling him, I'm, I'm discipling my grandchildren. It's not just about our, our children, it's about our grandchildren, not just about the next generation, but the next and the next and the next. What's at stake in this call of intergenerational discipleship? What's at stake is generational faithfulness. What's at stake is the generations to come. The children yet unborn. As we disciple the kids, the young people, the youth that are here in front of us now, we are investing in the future generations of Christ's church. Those who are yet unborn, that they too might come to a knowledge of who God is, a dependence on him and his work, that they might obey him with their lives. And that's a big job. But the reason that we don't need to have fear or anxiety as we approach this is because we're not called to do it alone. We're given the word of God, which is, which is powerful to make our children, to make the next generation wise for salvation. We have the spirit of God who empowers us and indwells us and guides us and brings to mind all truth as we teach our children and we're surrounded by the people of God. 
spirit-filled saints, believers who are called to disciple our children along with us, even as we are called to disciple theirs. See, there's no greater work in this world, no greater work in this life than discipling the next generation because when we disciple the next generation, we invest in the future of Christ's church. When we care for young people and point them towards Christ, we teach them the the character of God and the works of God, the law of God. We are investing in their future obedience and faithfulness and steadfastness, the obedience and steadfastness and faithfulness of future elders and deacons and mothers and fathers and missionaries and worship leaders and seminary professors and teachers and farmers. We're investing in the future of Christ's church and not just the next generation, but the one after that and the one after that and the one after that. That's what generational faithfulness is and that's why we're called to this work of investing in the next generation. And they need our investment. They need our investment in them because the world that my children are called to faithfulness in is a different world than I've been called to faithfulness in. The world that my two boys are going to be men in is not the same world that I've grown up in. The, the, the America, the West, the, the culture that they are going to go out into as adults is not the same one that we grew up in. See, all of us in here, we grew up in a world that was largely favorable, at least on the surface level, to the things of God. Now, in their hearts, they, might de- they deny the truth of God and they, they hate God, of course, We understand that, we know of the depravity of man, but at least at the cultural level, the world that we've grown up in, faithfulness to God has not cost very much. But that's changing, that's shifting, and that will not be the case for our children, not in the same way. Much less our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, generations yet unborn. The call to faithfulness will be harder. Steadfastness will be tested And so we need to invest now. We need to care for these children now. We need to raise them in the the nurture and admonition of the Lord now because they are going to fight a battle that you and I have never fought. They're going to face persecution that you and I have never faced. And when that day comes, They need to have been formed into steadfast, obedient, faithful disciples by the word of God, by the works of God, and by the people of God that he has placed in their lives, their parents and the family of faith that surrounds them. So what are you doing? How are you serving that next generation? I promise this wasn't all just something that I thought up to get more volunteers for children's ministry, but it wouldn't hurt. (laughs) How are you investing in the next generation of God's people and the generation beyond that? How are you discipling your children and not just your children, but theirs? 
We're all called to generational discipleship because the church is called to generational faithfulness. What are you doing? Let's pray.